Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we're talking with one of our own. We brought Mikhail Billick in to our studio from like two cubes down <laughs> to uh, come talk to us about something that he's doing. He's a grad student at the University of New England in Maine, and he's doing some really cool some really cool stuff in his program. It's a unique program. He's going to be the first group to graduate from it. And they're doing a really, really deep dive into the seafood industry, both on aquaculture and fisheries side. And they were able to take a couple cool trips and he told us all about it. And specifically, we spoke a lot about this trawling vessel in Iceland that is top fleet of, of vessels. Line. Top of the line. Brand new. Crispy new. Yeah. All <laughs> the latest technology. I mean, it is like a, a rocket ship in this thing. We saw some pictures. It's pretty cool. Maybe he'll give us some photos to share on social media when we push out the information for this episode, but he was able to get on that ship and and take a look at everything that they do. I mean, they go from actual trawling and catching the fish to heading and gunning on board, cold storage. They're just shortening up that supply chain quite a bit. So it was pretty cool. We learned a lot. Actually, I learned a lot. And I also learned a little bit about rotten sharks. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is stay cool. tuned to the end to hear about rotten sharks. Yeah, about, about eating rotten sharks because, you know, yeah. what else are you doing? When in Rome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> when in Iceland. When in Iceland. <laughs> so it's a cool conversation. I, I think you guys will enjoy it. And if anyone is interested in this program, it's I think it could be really beneficial for folks that are entering or are trying to expand their career in the seafood industry. So, and it's online, so you can do it from anywhere in the world. So check it out. Come uh, talk to us at the end. And Welcome, Mikhail. Yeah. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down with Mikhail Billick, who is a graduate student at the University of New England, and you're in a pretty unique program, which is pretty relevant to the seafood industry. So can you introduce yourself, give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you're doing over at UNE? Yeah, so I'm currently in a brand new graduate program at the University of New England, uh, UNE North. It's a professional science master's in ocean food systems. You fancy. So it's looking at um, aquaculture and fisheries and basically the value chains, the market, um, and kind of how climate change is kind of impacting both of those um, industries. So it's basically seafood. You're becoming a master of seafood. (laughs) <laughs> the seafood industry, really. How much emphasis are they putting on climate change versus some of the other issues? Um, a lot of what we're talking about right now is climate change issues related um, and global warming and things like that. And so a lot of that has to do with obviously aquaculture and how some of the climate change impacts are putting pressure back on our fisheries. Um, it's moving different fish stocks, either north or south or wherever the currents are going. And now aquaculture has become sort of that escape where we can grow fish in a controlled environment and yeah essentially have much more control over the product and how you can grow it whereas fisheries is you're very much dependent on the environmental factors around you 
Mm. So you say the program's new. Are you going to be one of the first graduates of this program? Is it that new? Like yeah. This yeah. Year? So this is the very first cohort of the program. Um, there's nine of us in the cohort. So it's a one-year program. We're expected to graduate in May. And currently right now, we're kind of all working on our specific graduate projects. So for me, I'm kind of looking at fisheries and value chain and certification programs. Some of the other students are looking at different seaweeds and uh, shellfish, things like that. So yeah, a wide, wide span. How does the program work? So I know it's, it's a little unique in, when compared to other kind of more standard graduate programs. Yeah, right? it's, it's a non-traditional master's program. So a professional science master's program is you're going to be a little bit more of an applied master's program. So um, for a program like this, it's applied to specifically fisheries and aquaculture. So it's a one-year program, like I said, and there are two travel courses within the program. We travel to Maine and Iceland, where we were immersed with the local communities, the fisheries and aquacultures in those communities. And then outside of those two trips, we were doing um, some coursework through transdisciplinary methods, research, different courses on fisheries and aquaculture, and then a lot of group discussions. So what have some of your classes been about? A lot of the uh, ones that are specifically focused on fisheries and aquaculture um, we try to cover a wide range of topics, so we'll look at things from anywhere from the small lobster fisheries in Maine to some of the larger fisheries out in um, like Iceland that do cod. So really assessing kind of just a wide range of the industry and some of the problems that are in there. So since it's UNE North, does that mean that it's pretty much centered around the North Atlantic ecosystem? Yep, absolutely. And that's the um, that's kind of the general idea of the whole program is because it is called UNE North. The focus is the UNE North Atlantic Ocean. However, Barry Costa Pierce, the executive director for the program, he has been uh, very accepting of the fact that we do have a cohort where a lot of our students come from various areas around the world. So he's very acceptable to people studying different topics around the world and not necessarily just the North Atlantic. That's really interesting that there's a few different people from different areas from around the world because you would think that people who would be attracted to this are kind of local-ish to New England or in the UK or Europe. Yeah, and I think that's kind of one of the problems with our seafood industry right now is I think a lot of people are very comfortable with the seafood around them in their area. So for us here in New England, we're comfortable with our seafood from New England. We're used to it. We know what we're getting. However, when we see products come from overseas, from China or Iceland or somewhere in Southeast Asia, we get a little skeptical because of this, that, or the other. Um, and so I think there's a lot of concern about where seafood comes from. And I think that's one of the great things we do here at GAA is we have a certification program where we're able to put assurances on that seafood. Definitely. So your program had two trips. Sounds like one was in Maine, one was in Iceland. We'll get to Iceland because there's some interesting things that you saw there that we want to talk about. Yeah, primarily there's something there that we want to really focus in on because it's a pretty cool innovation. Yeah. But uh, I'm just curious about the Maine trip briefly. What did you do? What did you see? Uh, Maine, we went all the way up to Lubeck, Maine. So if you don't know where that is, that is the most eastern point of the United States. On um, the nose. Yeah, it's it's way <laughs> out there. Um, it's probably about a five-hour trip, but um, it's very beautiful out there. It's very remote, very isolated. And so, yeah, we were immersed with a lot of the local fisheries there. We learned a lot about the, lo uh, the lobster fishery there mm -hmm. and a lot of the problems they're facing. We learned about the wild uh, rockweed harvest that's going on. There's... um. What's rockweed? Rockweed is a kind of seaweed that grows naturally on the rock beds along the shore. I guess it's 
the name says it all, rockweed. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess one of the issues that we've been seeing with rockweeds and specifically in this area is that there's been a uh, struggle for who kind of owns the property. There's been huge legal battles of, of uh, who kind of owns that property because it is technically out in the water that it's not privately owned, but it's public domain yep so having that kind of talk is very hard for some people so is rockweed like a pro like people are harvesting rockweed yes what are they what's it used for yeah. do you know? i'm not 100 percent sure i yeah I, I um i think it's mostly used for packaging for like seafood um kind of like a natural like an ice pack almost like a natural kind of uh i'm not even sure what to call it but huh. i know they natural use it packaging. yeah exactly um mm -hmm. Like instead of bubble wrap, you could do rockweed. Kind of, yeah. Oh, keeps it wet, <laughs> keeps it insulated, and I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So maybe I've seen rockweed before. Is it long and stringy, but does have those little, like yeah, capsules? Yeah, it's that got are... the little balls in it. You oh, can yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. know that. It's yeah. probably very common, obviously, since I've seen it. At least here in New I England. I only see, yeah, at least up in New England. Yes, yeah. yeah, so it is very common in the Northeast here. Yeah. Okay. No, now I can paint the picture in my head. <laughs> and you were lucky enough to take a trip to Iceland. Which, which is one of the most beautiful places on the entire planet. And I imagine it had quite an impact on you. Yeah. Because we saw some of the pictures and it looked absolutely stunning. Oh my gosh, was it ever. And Maddie and I, you and I were talking before the trip and we were just going back and forth about um, all the different views and what would I be seeing there. And I mean, you're absolutely right. It's It's a beautiful country. It's absolutely stunning. And yeah, I just recently gave a presentation to our work here, and um, I was just saying some of these pictures just don't even do it justice because um, the views are just that spectacular. And you visited some hatcheries and some uh, a couple farms, right? But what we really want to talk about is these fishing vessels, these processing fishing vessels. What can you say about those? What, where, how new are these fishing vessels? What are they? What do they do? What are their capabilities? And why are they such a big deal? Yeah, what makes them so like cutting edge? Sure. So <laughs> actually, out of the entire trip um, to Iceland, I think this was probably the most impressive part for me and a lot of the cohort. We went to Fisk Seafoods, which is a seafood company who uh, they own five large vessels in a fleet. And uh, they are responsible for going out and catching cod, haddock, a lot of ground fish, um, some pelagic fish. But the reason why they're so big and so successful is because they have a lot of these new modern day trollers. And we actually got to go tour one of these trawlers. The one we got to go tour was a brand new. It was built in 2017, so it was probably out in the water for one year. And it was just absolutely stunning. It was brand new technology, computers and uh, sensory data and everything like that. And uh, they do the packaging right on the vessel as well, which is uh, really spectacular because it's essentially taking out a step in the production chain and um, you're able to control the product better by doing the gutting and cutting right there on the vessel. So if we have any listeners that don't know what trawling is, could you explain that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a type of fishing where you uh, have a large net, essentially, and you drop it out on the back of your vessel and it goes all the way basically to the bottom of the ocean. And as your boat goes along, you basically drag the net with you and um, you pick up all the ground fish with it. So it's not supposed to be really dragging the bottom of the ocean floor, so it shouldn't be having a it's lot of- It's not like of, a dredge. Yeah, exactly. There's not a whole lot of environmental damage from it. However, your main focus is those bottom ground fish. So then they bring the net up when they're done their route. Yes. So throw back the ones they're not supposed to catch and- Keep the ones yeah, yeah, so are they okay with catching like a bunch of different species? Like that's normal 
Yeah, so obviously whenever you're in a fishery, you're going to have some sort of bycatch, whatever you're fishing for. And now Iceland is a little bit different where they actually take very good care of their bycatch. They either release it or they'll actually bring it to market where they can sell it. Um, obviously depending on the bycatch, but because of these modern day trawlers that are so advanced with technology, they're able to pinpoint exactly where these schools of fish are going and they're able to more successfully get those fish in quicker time and get them to market in quicker time. Now, do they choose net size based off the type of fish that they're catching so smaller fish can you know swim out? And yeah, that absolutely has a, a role to play in it. Obviously, a lot of the local laws and regulations with gear and net size obviously has a role to play in mm-hmm. it too. But yes, kind of what fish you're going to catch for is um, a huge part of that. A lot of them are now equipped with a lot of different technologies that help eliminate certain bycatch and things like, you know, there's a technology out there called TEDS, which is a turtle exclusion device, which is basically if a turtle gets into one of these fishing nets, it's basically an escape hatch for them to be able to just swim right out the back and and get out. And so there's, there's some, some cool, uh, you know, innovations taking place. Looking at some of the modern wild caught fishing technology is actually, it's pretty cool. What kind of some of the stuff that they figured out. So normally with wild caught fisheries, trawlers, trawling vessel will go out there, catch the fish in a net, bring it up on shore, sort it out, get rid of bycatch or, you know, sort what they want, put it in a hold, bring it back to shore, you know, stay out there as long as they can, get as much fish as they can, come back to shore with fish that's all different ages from catch to when they're offloading their boat. And then they transport that via truck or some type of transportation to a processing facility where it's gutted and headed and then sent to a processing plant where it's filleted or whatever yep. and then packaged and then sent out to the stores. There's a lot of time in between there. It's in some cases, uh, you don't know how long that fish has been there. Not all the fish is roughly the same age when it's packaged or put on ice. Uh, so how is this vessel closing that time gap and providing fresher fish? Because that's the whole point of it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So having that production chain closed down like I was talking about and doing that processing on the vessel, first of all, it's it's keeping the fish fresher because you're, you're essentially cutting down the time for die-offs or whatever the longer the fish stays on the vessel. Um, so doing the heading and the gutting and the filleting on the vessel, um, you get your product, well, fresher, quicker, and then um, you have better control over it so you can sell it to specific markets based on their needs. Uh, they obviously have a really giant freezer compartment in all these trawlers as well. So they cold can, storage. Cold yeah. storage, absolutely. So they can uh, take them and uh, ship them where they need to go. Um, a lot of them um, will come back to Iceland for more reprocessing. And then they'll uh, usually then go to uh, different markets, either in America, Europe, Asia, wherever. Do they ever have like intercepting vessels that come out and like just grab a bunch of stuff off their cold storage and then ship it to where it's going? Or do they always have to wait until they get into port to Um, Not necessarily to grab product, mostly because if you're moving products around like that, there's a lot. Food safety uh, yeah, there's a lot of food safety risks that could be that present. Sense. I guess the only reason why a vessel would want to come out is to stock the boat up mm. with either fuel, supplies, um, more containers for storage or whatnot. Shift change. Yeah, employees. exactly. <laughs> um, for the most part, it's it's usually the vessel going out for one to two weeks, catching its quota, and then coming back to harbor. That was the next question I was going to ask. How long yeah. are they normally out there? So I, I, I don't think people can really, it, it might be hard for people to visualize the size of this boat because when 
I think when a lot of people think of fishing boats, they think of like Jaws, the orca in Jaws, yeah, right? Yeah, or maybe a, or, a little bit bigger, or some, just something to like hold a decent amount of fish. But something are, like they'd see on like the the deadliest catch, yeah. right? World's Deadliest Catch, whatever, Deadliest Catch, that TV show, the crabbing TV show. That boat size is probably what people think of with a fishing vessel. But this is like, is this like a cruise ship? Like how, okay, yeah, how no. big is this thing? Like I wouldn't aircraft go to the carrier? extent of like <laughs> aircraft carrier yeah. cruise ships. Is this a floating island? That <laughs> yeah, no, they are they are forty to fifty foot long ships, so they are vessels. I absolutely encourage everyone listening go to Fist Seafoods and you can go look at all their um, vessels in there. We'll um, link, yeah, to it. We'll link yeah, to it in the show. absolutely. So. Um, but they are pretty impressive in the size. No, they're definitely no, no, like star carrier or whatever, like cruise ship size <laughs> vessels. But uh, <laughs> there's no water slides on no, it. No, no, basketball no. courts. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they are they are very big vessels, and they can definitely carry a large amount of fish. So how long have they been doing it for? About two years. They've been in operation. About Fis- a year? Well, Fisk Seafoods has been around for. I don't know. I would say about 20 years, a little bit right. more than that. But 20, these vessels themselves, these um, new vessels. Well, this, the one specific vessel that we got to go on was two years old. They have two other vessels in their fleet that are about 10 years old, and then another two vessels in their fleet that are about 15 to 20 years old. Okay. So do they kind of like rotate which ones are out or are they all out at the same time? Yeah. So they'll obviously take rotations and obviously they have a lot of employees in their company. So um, they have to rotate all the um, different fishermen who go out there. They got to rotate the engineers and the captains and everyone like that. So obviously they have their time out at the sea and then they have their time back at the harbor. Um, But it's obviously a continuous cycle just to uh, keep the market demand going. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that this is also like the act of kind of consolidating processing onto the vessel itself is also really good for environmental purposes because it kind of decreases the carbon footprint of the whole process. There's not as much trucks on the road. Yeah, exactly. And it just kind of makes sense to do it like this. No, that's a very good point. It's efficiency. yeah. 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 Something I never really thought about either in that, I mean, you are kind of reducing a lot of that kind of environmental damage from bringing the product back to shore and doing a lot of that processing on land. I think that's why Iceland is so far advanced, though, and so progressive is because they're coming up with these new and intuitive ideas that are really kind of transcending like the seafood industry. So it's yeah, it is fantastic to see more people get on board, but these boats aren't cheap. So (laughs) yeah, yeah. There's there's costs, obviously, to going in this direction, but you're seeing more and more of these type vessels out there. There was one, was it Norway? The, the, Norway, The yeah. Gannet? The Gannet, George, yeah. It was talking about that. That was a much larger boat, I think, than 40 or 60 feet when we saw it, or pictures of it, but... Don't quote me on that. I don't really know, but there are other. Yeah, we're, we're gonna look into that. But, yeah, uh... yeah, don't quote. <laughs> Just cut this piece out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't definitely say these are like the largest trawlers in the world or anything like that. But um, yeah, no, they're definitely very, very big size, and it's more the technology that exactly. is really impressive. I right, think, right? I think that's yeah. the more impressive part is the actual technology that goes into yeah. these vessels. And... I mean, how much automation is there? Like, what what are we looking at for a crew for that? I mean, are people on there? hand cutting these fish heading and gutting or is it all automated it's all automated all the way down from getting the fish on the vessel i think the only part of that is not automated is like 
picking the fish up from the net and putting it on the um, conveyor, belt. conveyor belt for it to go down the thing. And then wow. from there, it, I mean, it pretty much just goes down the line, does the cuts automated, heads and guts automated, and then puts it into storage automated, and then moving the bins into cold storage is automated. So, it, yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, well, when we were talking with Ace Aquatech on a episode, few episodes ago about their in-water electric stunning device okay. and they're working on bringing it out to fishing vessels something they're looking into yeah. they're gonna call it the olaflin and they're gonna call it yeah <laughs> we're, we're working on the na- name what the, you the Olaflin. that <laughs> but you know there's all these new innovative devices that are coming out and eventually they're gonna make sense to team up so i'd be curious to see yeah. a few years down the road if ace aquatech figures that technology out and if it would benefit a fishing vessel like this that's doing processing right on the, the vessel. I wonder if some of this automation and stuff is, is causing issues economically in regards to jobs and stuff. Cause I know that was, uh, that's always a big, not thing. even on the vessel, but truck drivers that were driving. Yeah. To, uh, I mean, you know, the more plants. automation there is, the less job, the less kind of, um, more hands-on blue collar jobs there are. And so I wonder if, had, did you hear any rumblings about anything like that while you were there or were people just really excited about the efficiency of it and stuff? Yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned that because that's kind of something that we've been noticing a lot when we were to Iceland is a lot of these different processing plants and vessels, they have such like far advanced technology. We were sitting there and thinking, well, why are there humans working here? If yeah. All of this is pretty much being done by robots. Because you can't trust robots. Exactly. That I little think, red light yeah. turns on and... Yeah. Um, I think at the end of the <laughs> day, though, seen Terminator. Yeah. there's definitely a human element to it in that um, obviously you're going to have to have somebody that handles this product with their hands and somebody is going to have to visually um, inspect it and make sure it's a clean and healthy and safe product to go out to market. So I think no matter how far advanced we get into that technology, I think there is kind of that human component that is kind of essential to fisheries and aquaculture. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I hope we don't figure out how to build robots that can mimic that that human touch that human eye yeah ai is a scary thing but yeah it can be yeah so uh we don't need to go down that road no yeah. <laughs> we only That's have an another hour. episode yeah. <laughs> so it's only been in operation for a year or two well never mind this is the boat you said they've had boats out there for like 10 years with this automation did they explain to you how it has increased basically their business how it has moved their business forward and you know have they like doubled and tripled and quadrupled their output and and their um, revenue and stuff like that? Like, did they notice a major difference in the success of their business by utilizing these boats? Because like Justin said, these are not cheap to run. Yeah. What's the return on investment? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a numbers guy. I wouldn't right, say right. like I have a number of like how, what their return on investment is. I think there's something special though about the name of Icelandic cod or Maine lobster where the product name essentially markets itself. Um, and this is something that we were talking a lot about in our uh, UNI North program in different species being able to market themselves. And I think Icelandic cod is kind of one of those species because it has this kind of sense of healthy and uh, fresh well-being just from the fact that it came from Iceland. And um, I think people are comfortable with the fact that a lot of the fishing out in Iceland is very far advanced and progressive and um, they take very good care of their workers. So, yeah, I don't know exactly if them getting these vessels is like a huge boost for their company. I think the cod industry in Iceland is always going to be competitive. There's multiple vessels and multiple companies out there who fish the same product. But I just think looking at the product of Icelandic cod in and of itself is able to market itself and is very successful. How tight are the quotas out there for the cod? Do you have any idea? 
So another unique thing about Iceland, something we learned about, is they have a very unique quota system where they have uh, something called the individual transferable quota system, the ITQ system. Oh, that's good. Another acronym. Yeah, Seafood yeah, needs yeah. more acronyms. Exactly. <laughs> so the whole uh, acronym ITQ, essentially what you have is you have a quota that every vessel or company gets for the year, and you're essentially able to trade that quota to different vessels or companies and use that as collateral, essentially. Huh. So basically you're seeing a lot of these larger vessels and companies are buying out smaller boats and their quotas and so Iceland is now being dominated by a lot of these larger vessels and companies where they're able to essentially buy out quota from smaller vessels. But overall the number never changes. Um, it's just no. passed around who can get yeah. how many and yeah. they that's really that's that's a pretty good system I would think but it does That's so it does I think that could potentially squash the, the little man in that it it definitely is an opportunity for the larger companies to gobble up a well, lot. The little of that. man can still get the quota then now instead of going out and doing any work they just sell their quota and sit Absolutely. back and no, reap the benefits. Yeah, and I think the thing with the ITQ system is that obviously it is kind of favored towards a lot of these larger vessels and larger companies who are able to buy out. I think the thing with the smaller vessels, though, is that they can still access their smaller markets and get their smaller quotas that they could get, but they have much more care and attention to the product, which is what some of these markets kind of require. Mm -hmm. And from a sustainability point of view, if the majority of the quotas are being gobbled up by these larger companies, I mean, the larger companies are the ones that have standards and certifications and are going to be on top of the latest technology in regards to sustainability and food safety. And so there's likely probably a less of a risk for contamination and things like that when the majority of the fish are being caught by these larger companies. So there's, you know, it's a give and take. That's interesting because the, the most recent episode we recorded, um, we talked about the cod industry in the U.S. and how it was pretty much completely depleted and mm. we're working on, you know, they, they've been trying to take steps to bring it back. And, yeah. and you know, so that's w when we think of cod being from America and specifically from New England, that's yep. what we think of is cod. Like you can't, don't touch cod, you know, but over there, <laughs> yeah. th there's clearly a, a good population that is being sustained. And I was in the same exact boat as you. And originally, like before going into this program and hearing all about it, I was in the same boat as like, oh, cod, like we can't touch cod? that. Exactly. What? Like, oh, it's going extinct almost. Like, don't, don't touch it. Don't do anything. But then after going to Iceland and hearing how the stocks are coming back because of the ITQ system, um, it's actually helping the stocks. And, um, yeah, so it's it's actually been better than ever. Good stuff. So what was your like biggest takeaway from your Iceland trip as a whole, not just about the fishing vessels, but about the whole trip? I mean, just overall, kind of go back to what I was saying. Iceland is, uh, Iceland is just such a progressive country in that they are, again, so far advanced in their thinking and knowledge. I mean, specifically just focusing in fisheries and aquaculture, they're already looking at different ways to farm arctic char which is again a species we don't really see here in america a lot but they're finding different ways to farm it they're finding different ways to farm salmon as well and then again you have the whole fisheries there so you have your hot haddock you have your cod and again they're able to get both of those fisheries down uh very clean and efficient and i think it just kind of almost puts america to shame since we have we don't necessarily have this figured out and I feel like if we're looking and comparing it to the lobster fishery here, it almost feels like we have lobstermen competing for the same product and not necessarily working together, whereas in Iceland, it's a little bit more cooperative. And in the U.S., uh, lobster fishery is poster child for sustainable fisheries. I mean, they did a really good job early on 
of establishing these standards, these standards uh, for what you can keep and what you have to throw back. And, you know, it's been pretty well self-regulated over the years. So when you look at it as if you compare the lobster fishery in Maine to the cod fishery in Iceland and lobster fishery is just seems so far behind. What does that say about all of our other fishery systems? And so, you know, it's interesting. And I, I know you were saying that Iceland is one of the most progressive places you've seen in regards to just sustainability and environmental sustainability in general. But they're unique and they have some some pretty natural benefits that they can take advantage of over there. Correct? Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. Um and I think that is one of the things that Iceland can obviously take advantage of is a lot of their geothermal activity and hydropower allows them to have such clean and uh, renewable energy that it's not like they're using natural gas or oil or anything like that. And I think that's also kind of why it kind of helps the image of Iceland and cod is that they have all this renewable energy, whereas yeah. in America, it's we're just burning fossil fuels every day. Yeah, I mean, their their landscape and their geography allows them to yeah. do this a little bit easier than other countries. I mean, definitely there's a lot of stuff we could do in America. But And, and I will say in regards to kind of the image, Iceland is lucky in the fact that they're, the name alone of their country allows them to, you know, it portrays this kind of image of cold, clean, fresh. Just saying it's Icelandic gives you this this image in your mind that it is it's very clean and fresh and crisp and you know yeah that's so true just from a from a marketing standpoint Definitely. is there a water brand isn't there a yes. brand of water yes that, there definitely is i can envision it. it has a lot of like crags oh yeah plastic. i definitely got that water bottle on the yes. plane on the way there <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah was it crisp and it clean? was very crisp it was good <laughs> yes. water yeah. it tasted like it was once ice and it was melted into yes. water yeah it was very good water <laughs> at one point this was frozen <laughs> That's why I love Coors Light so much because it comes from the Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> the coldest beer, yeah. yeah. When the best thing about your beer that you can market is like an attribute that you just add to any beer, like temperature. That's a that's a problem. And I'm pretty um, sure they distribute it only by a cold train. Yeah, <laughs> it's the love train. Oh, sorry. Don't they play the, the love, love train, train in the commercials? Yep. Uh, I had something somewhere else I was going to go with that, and then you totally derailed my thoughts. You're we're welcome. Talking about how they, they have a marketing advantage because yeah. Icelandic itself just means like... Yeah, and I think and I think that bleeds into some of the surrounding countries. Norwegian salmon can play on that a little bit just because they're kind of in a similar, mm -hmm. similar area and stuff like that. There's certain things you just... They almost don't have to market the name anymore because it's so ingrained. I mean, in New England, we have Vermont maple syrup, which mm -hmm. has a much more a better ring if it was vermont maple syrup versus new hampshire or maine, maine, maple maine syrup. lobster yeah maine lobster is also about that yeah it's amazing how much tacking a location onto your product can make a difference absolutely yeah. and iceland is fortunate that the name of their country carries a very specific kind of image to it but it matches with the, the quality you're not just saying well we just can play Play are the name game, but no, they're I mean, selling a very quality product, yeah. so they're just lucky to have They can back it best, up. Yeah, they can back it up. They can back it up for sure. So when I was in college, one of my professors told me about Iceland and this one product that they have, which is a shark, that he said you need to, I think he said it was some type of vodka that you have to take a shot with when you eat it or else it will like kill you because you need the alcohol to help- Clean it. Yep. Clean it out. <laughs> 
I thought it was kind of just a funny little thing that he was telling us about. You experienced this yeah. firsthand. Please so, tell us this story. Yeah, <laughs> you are thinking of the fermented shark and the Black Death. Yes. So the fermented shark is a Greenland shark that is, <laughs> it's kind of one of these things that is, it's a native to the Arctic uh, waters because it's a cold uh, cold water species. However, it's one of these species that not a lot of people eat because it's it's one of the oldest animals in the world, actually. And we what don't, was the name again? Greenland shark. Okay. We don't normally okay. advocate the consumption of sharks on this show. Yeah. We are not really in support of that. But, but if you go to Iceland, this, this is something is a you kind of have to do there because it is cultural. So what they do is they'll catch the shark. However, when you catch the shark, you're not allowed to eat it right after because, again, I'm not a scientist, but there's something within the shark that after you kill it, it releases a certain chemical that can be toxic Like to a humans. biotoxin or something? Absolutely. So essentially what you have to do is you have to ferment the shark and allow it to let those chemicals die off. So what they do is they take the Greenland shark and they dig a giant hole in the sand, put the shark in there, and then bury it. Wait about three or four weeks and then take it out and cut it up to serve. Um, it's Gross. probably one of the grossest things you could ever eat. It <laughs> smells like dead fish and seagulls. Um, <laughs> well, it is a dead fish. There's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then the drink, the schnapps or Black Death, they're actually two separate drinks. So you could have Black Death, which is essentially like a vodka. That's what I was told. I was told vodka. it was like an unbelievably strong yeah. vodka that yeah. would just kill anything in, in your body, yep. basically. Um, the <laughs> other one it. is uh, Icelandic schnapps, which is a type of liqueur. And everyone kind of makes it differently in Iceland. The one that we had with our uh, fermented shark was actually a local schnapps that the guy who was doing the tour, he actually had his family recipe of schnapps. So it was kind of like a berry juice of mixture of stuff, but it was really good. The shark so it was wasn't. fruity? Yeah, it was oh, actually. Okay. It was pretty fruity. Um, I would definitely choose schnapps over a vodka titled the black death yeah see i'd go with the black death. oh no uh, i had yeah. both the, the schnapps was way better well yeah because <laughs> right, like a quarter of the alcohol content yeah, in it. yeah. You, you can like you can drink gasoline or you can drink fruit juice take yeah. your pick <laughs> i'll go with the prune juice <laughs> yeah that that black death will put some hairs on your chest <laughs> or well, kill them off <laughs> yeah yeah burn them right off yeah. well i mean that's cool that you got to, to experience that and it is a cultural thing I was told that it's something that they do at like festivals every year and it's just kind of like they don't it's not like a regular it's obviously not like something like shark fin soup where it's considered a delicacy and like people are killing hundreds and hundreds of sharks to serve it all all over the place like this is a kind of specialized a small thing that is done culturally that right it's yeah and yeah absolutely it's a culture thing and both my mom and dad shout out to my mom who's a listener hi mom uh they both went to iceland last year and got to try the greenland shark and i mean they yeah they said the same thing it was just like one of those experiences you had to try but uh would be okay if you never tried it again mm. <laughs> you check the box and you're yeah. done yeah well, that that is that's cool that you did that, and um, you got a great story out of it. And you got a nice little certificate. Right? Yeah, yeah, I got that sitting on my <laughs> desk. That you did it. Yeah, I'm gonna hold on to that one. So, yeah. did you try the Black Death? Yes, I did. Oh, um, and it was probably the name described it all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there, it's there, basically there, a massive plague that just destroys a huge chunk yeah. of the population. There are definitely <laughs> much better alcohols to try in Iceland while you're there. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, any any other really unique experiences that you had over there, or something that you noticed that maybe that opened your eyes a little bit more about the seafood industry in Iceland specifically it, it, or just through your program yeah I mean I guess I it just gives me kind of more of a uh, world view on seafood I guess and anyone who's interested in seafood and 
fisheries and aquaculture, I strongly encourage you to look at this UNE North program and apply because it is a great program and it does uh, take a, a wide look at uh, seafood as a whole and um, all the different problems with it. So um, just sitting there and talking with our cohort, you learn so much about just all these different problems. So um, it's really rewarding to just sit there in class and kind of go back and forth and bounce ideas back off of each other. So. Are your cl classes primarily online? Yeah. So mm -hmm. that you, is. Do you ever go to the Biddeford campus or? No. So that is the great part about this uh, class is that they do offer the class in Portland where our. Oh, in Portland. Yep. Okay. Yep. The campus is in Portland, but it does allow students to work remotely and uh, Zoom in or Skype in. So yeah, absolutely. Cool. And you're going to be done soon. When are you graduating? May 2020. So. It's coming, man. Yeah. It's Just got to start plugging away on my project. You're almost and then... there. How you, how's your project coming? Are you good. feeling good about it? Um, yeah. So my project right now, I'm looking at basically certification companies and fisheries. I want to look at how third-party certification programs can enhance social sustainability in fisheries. Um, wild caught or? Uh, wild caught. Okay. Yep. So, so you look primarily at programs like MSC? Yeah, I want to look at MSC. I'm obviously going to look at uh, Wally's new program that he's going to start at GSA mm -hmm. um, and then assessing how some of those programs can address social issues in fisheries and how that can basically help them in the marketplace. Cool. And is the goal to, I mean, write a published paper? Yeah. I mean, whatever comes of it, honestly. Um, I'm one of those people that's kind of like free wing, see where it goes and hope for the best. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, you're in the right place. You got a lot of good resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, so that's cool. Yeah. Will you uh, kind of look at how certification has transformed the aquaculture space to mimic a little bit of what your project's going to be focusing on? So, yeah. Well, um, my project specifically is actually fisheries and not aquaculture. So that was yeah. kind of the one thing that I wanted to define was I know a lot of our students were studying different areas in aquaculture. Um, and then after bouncing a lot of these ideas off of, um, our professor, Barry Costa-Pierce, he said, um, all right, so a lot of people are doing aquaculture. How about you study fisheries? And yeah, It's um, not going away. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's something that's not going to go away. And I think a lot of people um, have a very special connection to fisheries. And it's something I definitely want to study and learn more about. So, yeah, I'm very excited to learn about that. Have you gotten to spend any time out on fishing vessels? Um, no, not like actually going out and doing the uh, fishing. A lot of these boat tours, it's basically showing us kind of the harbors and well, they're where they go and yeah, in the port. But I mean, as for going out and doing the fishing, that's that is a very dangerous job where there's a lot of legal stuff behind it. So um, yeah, no, obviously they would not let us out, go out and actually do the fishing. But, but I imagine you've gotten a chance to speak with a lot of fishermen. Yep. And so what is the general consensus on that level? The guys that are on the boats and the guys that are managing the fleets and stuff. What is the general consensus surrounding certification programs? Is it a, a generally a positive outlook on this is a good thing or is it a nuisance? Because I know in aquaculture, it's kind of mixed. I think it depends on the fishery and obviously where you are in the world. So for instance, in Iceland, they have this fishery that's so well advanced and so um, well adapted now that a lot of them don't really think that certification program is necessary just because they have this fishery that is already successful it is i'm doing things right why do exactly. i need to prove it yep and so for something like that they not necessarily would um like a third-party certification program however if you look at other fisheries that are maybe a little bit more depleted or struggling a little bit i know there's um fisheries out in thailand that are facing a lot of different social issues mm. i know wally's trying to start uh the gsa in the uk which has a lot of different fisheries 
Um, so there are obviously fisheries out there that could use third-party certification programs to help bring light to that and help in the marketplace. However, it's not necessarily for everyone. From what you were just saying, it almost seems like it hasn't really been embraced yet by the guys that are on the boats and the guys that are running the fisheries. It's probably similar to aquaculture in that it's it's being pushed by the buyers and the the market the marketplace. Yeah. Um, and so we, as an industry, we need to work towards getting the actual producers who are on the ground, on the water, embracing these third-party certifications so that they're doing the right thing. So that's that's a challenge that we're posing to anyone who's listening that works in the industries. We need to work together to do that. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I people think, helping people. Yeah, I think as long as that <laughs> communication stays open between fisheries and uh, certification programs and the general public alike, I think the more communication we get between those different stakeholders, I think... Um, the better off we'll be going in the future. Yeah, and clear definitions, clear communication on what it is. You know, we did an episode uh, early on about eco labels, and we talked about some of the different labels, like like MSC and like Dolphin Safe Tuna, things like that. Getting a little more clear definition around what the requirements are behind those and what they represent um, will make things a whole lot easier, and will help define which products are going to be superior in the marketplace. So uh, I love it. Anything else you want to share about? Your experiences? Uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Awesome. You Great guys have time. anything else? No. Well, we uh, wish you the best of luck in your research project. And yeah. Hope, uh, we're excited to see what you come up with. And, you know, we're excited for you to graduate. And Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. If people want to contact you, are you willing to let us put your contact information? We, you work here at, at yep, GAA. Absolutely. So yeah, we didn't so. say it in the <laughs> beginning, but Mikhail actually works as a BAP certification specialist, which is why it's so interesting that he's looking into certification schemes for wild caught fisheries because he, he knows, you know, the certification world very well in the aquaculture side of things. So I'm interested to see how you'll be a good resource to talk about how they differ and how they're how they compared. So yeah, a lot of exciting stuff coming up in the future. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. So good for you. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. You guys have anything else for Mikhail? Nope. We'll yeah. see you at lunch. All right. Thanks guys. <laughs> All right. Thanks. <laughs> Folks, that was our conversation with Mikhail Billick. Like I said, he is a BAP certification specialist here, but he is also a grad student at UNE. As always, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. It's nice to get someone that we know really well in here. Yeah, we haven't done that in a while, actually. Yeah, we've been, we've, we've been lucky to get a lot of people from uh, outside our company to come in and talk to us. And we keep getting messages from people all over the world that want to be a part of the show. So we appreciate that. So Yeah, thank you for all the positive feedback about the show. It really means a lot to us with all the work that we put into it. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. thank you. For sure. We've been doing it for, well, not almost a year. It'll be a year in March, actually. So, But the planning before we took off, it's been well over a year. Yeah, we've been working on this for a long time so we appreciate all the kind words and if you are interested in being a part of the show or working with us or if you're in scotland and you want to fly us out to <laughs> we'll just pitch that one more time ding, ding, ding. Um, <laughs> then feel free to email us our email address is podcast at aquaculturealliance.org or you can tweet at us follow us at aquademia pod and we'd love it if you could leave us a voicemail our phone number is one 384 that's right and if you like the show and you want more of it you're not subscribed what are you doing <laughs> push that subscribe button subscribe it's a purple button on apple podcast but if you don't use apple podcast you can subscribe it's green on spotify spotify it's green yep swoot it's purple still anywhere you listen google podcast spotify stitcher overcast bullhorn.fm 
Wow. Uh, That's a new one. CastBox. I mean, we're, we're pretty much everywhere. So if you hit that subscribe button, then you'll never miss an episode. And it's really easy to share with other people. So rate and review and share it with your friends. And let's build our community. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. 